Tyrese Halliburton was stunned, Malika. Uh, the league is stunned at this trade. First 10 for three. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows Podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. As always, before we get started today, if you have not already, please be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts. We always want to hear from you and get your feedback. Uh, this is going to be, I think, our fourth or fifth um, episode of Stock Up, Stock Down going through the NBA draft. The first one, uh, post-lottery, so that is uh, that is exciting. I think it uh, gives us a little bit more direction here. Uh, of course, joined by my good friend, co-host and colleague, Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing today? Doing well and excited to be launching in once, as you said, we're past the draft lottery and we know some of the people that the Pacers have at least interacted with. And today that actually also matches up with some requests that we've been getting, or at least I got on Twitter for who people wanted to have us profile next. So ready yeah. to go. Who is who is that today? Today we have Benedict Matherin, who it was reported over the weekend first by James Boyd, said that the Pacers talked to him briefly after the draft lottery, and then the Athletics subsequently reported today that he's one of the players that they talked to at the Combine. Yes, um, and so to, to to spark off our conversation there, um, joined by a really good friend of mine, somebody who was back in the public sphere after some time working more privately in scouting with Zach Milner. Zach, how are you doing today, man? Hey, I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? I'm good. I can't complain. Uh, it's been uh, it's been a solid day in Cleveland, Ohio. But I'm psyched to talk some some Ben Math, man. I uh, I know you a ton personally. So just to give people some background, um, you went to U of A uh, at Arizona, where where Ben played, obviously. Um, and you've, I mean, I think you've seen as much of Matherin as just about anybody uh, in this past year. And I trust your scouting eye a ton. So really psyched to, to have you on. You could take the time. Appreciate it. So, Caitlin, uh, because I always forget to do it and even to tell our guests that it's what we're doing, what is our our uh, our, our mode of, of conduct today? How are we going about talking about the draft? Yeah, so our format for these draft profiles, we're calling it stock up, stock down. So basically what we go in doing is for this particular pod, we picked Benedict Matherin, and then we picked the games that he played against Houston, Tennessee, and UCLA. We both watched those games, and then we're each coming up with a reason to be bullish about the player and bearish about the player. And today Zach's invited on as our draft expert to bounce our ideas off of from a broader perspective and, and tell at least me in particular, how wrong my takes are. So I'm ready to get started with this. And I want to turn it over to let Mark go first. Cause I oh, went first the last time and I'm putting <laughs> you on the spot. Okay. All right. Um, stock up for me is for, I want to say, I'm trying to remember if I have this noted down correctly. I want to say this was in the Houston game. Um, but he takes uh, coming off the far left wing um, off of a, a dribble handoff. He takes a pull up three and I think he's contested by about three people and it's just completely unbothered. I think that's one of the things that really stood out to me about Ben. Like, obviously I think he's going to get the shooter label or whatever, but um, it's not like, I think he has versatility for sure, but I think his ability to um, be pretty unbothered by contests really stood out to me a lot and impressed me throughout the course of the season, especially on rewatch um, that stood out a ton as well. Like he gets really good height on his jumper. The release points good. Um, so that is my stock up just because this is a team that is definitely in need of more shooting, especially 
um, you know, not just wide open ones. So uh, that was, uh, that was my stock up. That's a good yeah. pick. Oh, go ahead, Zach. Oh, sorry that. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I think that's a, a, a good point there. Also. I, I think that like you mentioned, his versatility is, is, is really good, but the, the ability to, to have that kind of release and not be affected by contest also makes sense. But yeah, sorry. Sorry for cutting you off there, Caitlin. No, I was just going to say that I think that the play that you're referencing is also going to make an appearance in my section on the post, because mm-hmm. when he comes off, I think it's it's a, mainly a veer action where he's veering back to the ball, which Rick Carlisle likes to use a lot. And when you watch how much elevation he gets on that shot and there's three people around him, you cannot even see his feet. That's how high he is. Like, that's nuts. I mean, some of the some of the shots he's able to hit coming off of screens are, are fairly wild. But yeah, I'll let Zach continue to go on about him as a shooter since I rudely interrupted our guest. <laughs> no, that's my fault. That's my fault. But, but oh, no, I was I, just getting I, too Midwest already. We're doing fine. <laughs> I, I think that um, his shooting is obviously his one of his best skills. Um, the versatility he's been used off of screens um, both last year and this year a bit. Um, doesn't shoot off the dribble that often, but I do think he's flashed it a bit as well. Like Caitlin mentioned, the elevation on a shot is good. Like you said, the ability to not really be bothered by contest much. I think one thing with him also, he's actually shown some NBA range um, over the last two seasons. And I think actually looking back on it, I think he has shot a little bit better his freshman year than this past season. I think he can be a better shooter than what he actually showed his sophomore season. But I think overall his game just improved much more this the mm-hmm. sophomore season if you if you go back and um, watch the freshman season there were so many games where he just looked invisible out there I mean he had a couple games where he would score like 20 or 30 and was the best player for Arizona last year or I guess two seasons ago but there were so many games where he just was just out there just playing basketball not really doing too much but but this past season I think that that showed a little bit in the first month maybe even like first couple of weeks of the season, but then once the season moved forward, they started playing bigger games. Um, he really showed up when it counted this year. Yeah. And I think some of the dip that, that was there for his sophomore season from three might have to do, I saw in synergy that he shot like 26%, I think on unguarded catch and shoot. So I think that might just be a little bit of random noisiness to be honest, because like he was making the harder shots, which, you know, I take a little bit more stock in, but um, agreed. And and also he was much like really good at those, like running into your shots and transition and going right into your threes then. Um, so I, I think that just those movement threes that he's made, I think running into your shots and transition um, with your, without you just be sitting still, like you said, stand still open threes. He's probably better than what he showed this past year. And I've actually been, when been tracking NBA range threes um, through like synergy shot chart data, I have a whole database that I've put together. And if you combine his, his last two seasons, I have him shooting at 37.6% from NBA range on 141 attempts. Um, I've actually split that up into two different things above the break threes and corner threes. He shot um, 24 for 40 or 24 for 59. So just under 41% from corner threes over the two seasons and then 29 for 82, uh, 35.37% above the break. There's going to be a little bit of room for error just because it's a shot chart data and I have to go to 24 feet, um, which is not the exact NBA range. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think he's been able to show NBA range as well, which I like looking for in prospects. Definitely. No, I think those are really great points. Um, not to make it negative, but just more in terms of looking at like where you can improve on it too. Where are you at with his shot prep, Zach, or just like his, uh, his readiness off the ball? 
I think it's fine. I, I think last year, actually, it was a little slower. I think he actually improved. It's a little bit quicker this year than mm-hmm. it was last year. Um, but no, I'm not too worried about that. I think that um, the elevation does help getting his shot off in time. And I think that when he's able to come off screens, I actually think his, his prep is, is, is actually, I'd say, above average when he's coming off screens and getting yeah. his, his feet set. I think there are a, a bit of times when he's shooting off the dribble where he's a little bit off balance, though. Yeah. Yeah. I think what stood out to me, like, like you mentioned, I really like him coming off screens as a shooter. I think my thing was more about like, sometimes like he can have his arms down off the ball or like, he's not always super ready on catch and shoots. It feels like sometimes like I'm, I'm nitpicking, but just like pointing out, I think think that's, there's there's definitely room for improvement there. That'll like, just to point out, like there's even more there for him as a shooter that I think um, like he's not getting billed as like quote unquote, the best shooter in the draft. And I wouldn't have him quite there, but like, I think, um, there's, there's a lot there to be excited about for sure. So Caitlin, I'll turn this over to you now. What yeah, is I'm going to, I'm going to admit that my stock up when people read it is, is a little bit lengthy, but I have a point. Well, I'm excited. Um, <laughs> yeah. So after the draft lottery, Kevin Pritchard, I mean, we had a little short pod about this, but in his media availability, this quote stood out to me a lot where he said, we're going to do some things different as to what they're going to do at pre-draft workouts. We're going to watch film with players and we're going to get their take on how they feel about how they fit with us. Um, after watching these three games, I don't know if there's a player who's going to have an easier time with that particular exercise than Matherin. Um, Arizona, I feel, ran a lot of NBA-like actions, especially with him. And when I started watching the games, there's so many plays that are identical to what the Pacers do, just like what you referenced before, running that veer. Rick Carlisle really likes to bring shooters back toward the ball once they go away. That's an identical play. Arizona liked to run a high pick and roll paired with an exit screen for Matherin to come off the exit screen in the corner. That's a very, you know, a lot of teams run that as an NBA action and he hit those shots fairly well, both in the UCLA game and in the Houston game. I have examples in the section of the Pacers running the identical action. Um, They also like on baseline out of bounds plays, they set up like they're going to run an elevator screen only he or in this case that you're going to see in the article, Justin Holiday or Dwayne Washington Jr. They don't go through the elevator doors. They purposely curve around the outside and then go, you know, flying into the corner. And he that was a play they ran for him on baseline plays, the veer play that we already referenced. Um, And then also they like to use Euro ball screens as continuity and he's very good and effective, which I'm sure we're going to get into this as a cutter. So he'll stay active and alive when he's cutting on those 45s into the handoffs where he'll still find the seam in the defense. And then his physical tools are so good that he can capitalize in finding those seams. And then I also just don't know if I've seen a team run as many actions strong side for um, a cutter, like specific plays. Like, I don't want to say that he never improvises, but I think that kind of speaks to his skill set that Arizona was willing to gear like two or three specific sets around him as a cutter, which people can see this more in depth when they get into the article. But um, I think it would be a very easy sell, particularly for Rick Carlisle to see the different things that he does and envision him within their offense. In addition to what he also does in transition, just running out and ahead of the ball. And Mark and I have talked about this in the past because Tyrese Halliburton really likes to clap and get the ball and get headed the other way and then give it to his teammates and have his teammates run with him versus, you know, if you drafted somebody like Jaden Ivey, who's very quick with the basketball, Matherin's going to beat other people down the floor. And if the Pacers are going to get a higher share of their offense in transition, which hasn't quite happened yet, I think it's going to come from what type of personnel that they put on the roster more so than the scheme. And I also think there's some stuff he can do with, um, secondary pick and rolls as well that he could play off of 
Halliburton with or whoever else is in the guard rotation. So that was a lot to throw out there, but my main overarching point is I think that it's going to be pretty easy for him to sit in a film room with the Pacers and be like, Hey, this is what I do. And here's how I can do what you already do better in certain spots. Yeah. So I honestly agree with pretty much everything you said there. I think that what I've been saying with him is the ideal fit for him is you want to get him into a team that wants to run, but also has some off ball movement on offense. And then with him, when you're looking at the, the upside kind of potential, I think he does need a little bit of improvement with his handle and his passing has gotten better from his freshman year to his sophomore season. And also from early in the season to late in the season. Um, I know you guys didn't put this one on the games that you mentioned, but I think the first half at USC this year was probably his individual best half as like an on-ball kind of player, but he is more of this secondary or off-ball kind of player. Um, and and with the upside I was going to get to is if he improves the passing a little bit more in the handle, I think he can be pretty dangerous in some DHOs, honestly. Um, and then like you mentioned with the cutting, they ran a lot of back doors for him. He did have some instinctual cuts this year. I think the the, the big dunk against TCU stands out as actual instinctual cut where he gets open. Um, and he had more of those throughout the year, but, but I agree with pretty much everything you said there. Um, I, I really think you want to get him off movement because he's also good at attacking off the catch, whether it's off of a screen when he's already moving or attacking closeouts from a standstill. I'm um, just, just, I think playing him off the ball more, but still letting him move on offense is when you're going to get the most out of him and then transition. Obviously he's really good there. Yeah, and I think a lot of that can kind of flow into where I'm at uh, with my stock down because I think my stock I because I think I have an idea where you're going with with your stock down. If you don't, we'll have a separate part. But um, for my stock down, it it sounds uh, annoying, but it's just general uprightness, if that makes sense. Uh, because for me, that's kind of where I'm at with his handle right now, um, and where he's at defensively too. Like he plays pretty upright. Um, like not to saying that he's not always in a stance is the wrong way to put it. But like, I think even offensively, like he gets caught being too high coming around a screen with, especially if he has the ball before the screen um, or on a DHO, like he had a lot of issues getting caught from behind just because he has to like slow down getting around a screen or he's not as uh, um, he just doesn't have like quite the same verb with the ball in his hands. And I feel like a lot of it is because of how upright he is. I don't know if you would agree with that. That's kind of, my general takeaway, I felt like I took like a million notes on that throughout, especially, I mean, on defense too. Like, I think he can get away with a lot of things because of his natural tools. And I don't think that he's necessarily a bad defender. Um, but there are some moments for sure where like he gives up dribble penetration because of how high up he is. And he isn't able to, to get a stop because he's not quite down in a stance and able to really lock in at the point of attack. With the, with the upright stuff, I agree. Um, I think it stands out to me more on defense than on offense. Yeah. I do think there are some times on offense where it stands out, like you mentioned when he when he's in waiting for the ball. I think on the pick and rolls, um, there are times where I think he's a little higher. I, I can't remember if it was the Tennessee or the Illinois game. I know you guys only watched one of those, but there was there was one game where he was getting in the pick and roll a lot and was, was kept on floater 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 i don't remember if it was that that was was. i think he got blocked four or five times too yeah i i think that he made in one of the games though he was i think he made like three of them as well um i I, the floater numbers weren't great this year but i actually think he flashed it to where i think there's stuff there to where um Mm -hmm. i I do think the handle's a big part especially in traffic um i think that they can 
stop what he wants to do and and he wants to improve that um just a bit but yeah i think on defense he definitely can give up penetration more than you'd like especially with his physical tools just because he's, he's standing up a little bit too much um but i do think he he showed i think it might have showed a little bit more his freshman year than this past season i think all on defense i think he was better his freshman year um i think that he did a little bit better job just technique getting around screens as well um and and, and then the off ball awareness on defense um was let's say rough at times this season yeah yeah um there's a we, lot of things that i want to branch off of from all yeah. of that if, if well, we I mean, can if yeah, we can like my well yeah that's exactly what i get into because like i mean i wanted to just use the uprightness to talk about the handle too because i want to see where you guys are out with handle because i think that's the biggest question mark here for him offensively right now yeah so the, the weird thing with him is if you go back and watch him with the global academy basketball without borders he actually looked pretty shifty at times with the ball, but then you go back to watching two full seasons at Arizona and I could probably only think of two or three instances where he's looked like that. Um, I, I think the handle can, it's probably a pro it is a problem. I'm not sure if it's fully going to limit him from being effective though. Cause I do think he is talented on offense, but I do think that, if you want him to take the next step mm -hmm. and you want him to run those secondary pick and rolls on the side or some DHOs or whatever, he does need to improve that handle a little bit more. But I do think that for him to get that, he doesn't need to improve it significantly. I, I honestly think just a little bit for him is enough as long as the passing improves more because he is a good slasher. He's a good finisher. I think that, like I said, the floaters weren't great, but I think there's a flash there as well. So, I, I mean, I still think you can project that into him, but it's definitely not a strength right now. The first thing that I want to ask from all of this that we've brought up is about the floater and the runner in general, because you mentioned the numbers. Synergy has him shooting 28% on the runner. Instat has him at 32%. They included a few more that I don't know that I necessarily would have qualified as a floater. But mm -hmm. when he gets to the runner out of the pick and roll, he was three of 18. So that's not a huge volume, but still wasn't super effective. He's always jumping off of two feet and the overall mechanic of it can at times feel a little bit awkward to me especially if he needs to go into a wider angle drive um how confident are you zach in in the continuation or the progress of his floater at the next level i wouldn't say i'm, I'm totally confident in it i just think there's there's some stuff i honestly don't mind um i i think his touch is pretty solid and i i, I think he it doesn't look that awkward. I think the form is pretty solid on those as well, but like, I think you brought up a good point there. It is normally two feet instead of one feet or one foot. Um, if you go back, I'm trying to think last year, I think it was the, one of the Washington state games last season, his, I guess freshman year, I keep on saying last season, but his freshman year, um, I think he had two nice floaters in that game. Um, I think one of them might've been off one foot falling to the right as well. I mean, I just think I've seen it, it occasionally from him to where I think there's, room for optimism even though i wouldn't say i'm necessarily confident in it yeah because i mean he shot a very high percentage on twos in general like 51 percent. but then when you look at some of his pull-up shots out of the pick and roll the runner out of the pick and roll um like obviously tyrese halliburton's kind of the gold standard on on runners in general <laughs> but like he was at 47 percent um this year with the pacers i'm not sure completely like he can hit the pull-up three but when he gets into the mid-range area, like it's not like he's doing a lot personally to get to the rim off the dribble off penetration. Like a lot of what his twos are coming from, at least from what I was able to break down from the numbers, and I'm sure you have a lot more, is a lot of assisted twos curling to the rim and off cuts. So um, 
that's kind of where my thought with the floater comes from that if the Pacers, because they do run a lot of actions with like, you know, boomerang passes between their guards up top or with a wing up top, if you are playing him as like a secondary, you know, to get secondary pick and rolls or as a secondary playmaker around with Halliburton and he gets run off the line, can he leverage his gravity into an in-between shot and reliably? Yeah, I I think that's fair to bring up. Um, I personally am not too worried about that. I think he does attack well off the catch or he's shown flashes of it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I do agree with you that most of his shots at the rim are those cuts, are those curls, those where he gets most of it. Um, I think that when he attacks closeouts or those pick and rolls, he sometimes does settle for those mid-range shots or those floaters instead of getting all the way to the basket. Um, but I, I do think that the the finishing um, c- can come out. You just, yeah, I think you just want him to attack more, but I'm not too worried about that. I, I think he has shown that he can attack the basket. I think he has a solid first step with his shot gravity, with his shooting gravity as well, a little pump fake and get the defender in the air and he can hopefully get to the lane there. Yeah, because I think he had a really nice moment. I don't know if Mark will remember it from the UCLA game. And usually these camera angles, I, I get very angry at when I'm watching it. But in the sake of this, it was actually pretty informative because they had a full court angle on the camera where he's running a second pick and a second pick and roll on the left side of the floor. They switch it. And he's motioning to the big, hey, seal that off, notices the baseline's open, and is able to drive and attack that switch because he has the benefit of the seal. So I thought that was a little bit emblematic of some of the growth that I felt he showed because I watched a few other games in addition to these as well in terms of just his overall recognition and patience felt like the game slowed down a little bit for him as, as the season went on with Arizona in terms of me thinking he may have some upside to do a little bit more of that. Yeah, and I think that's also goes to show, like, that's not passing right there. But like I said, as the season went on, I think he showed more as a passer as well. And I just think it's good, like you said, the game just slowed down for him as the season went on. I think that also shows that. Yeah, I think, like, a great moment. um, I want to say this was in the Houston game. Just it it sounds rudimentary, but getting – he he has, I think, coming off of – coming off a handoff at the top of the key, uh, Christian Coloco screens his man out just gets two feet into the paint and makes a quick dump off. Uh, I want to say it's Ballo, uh in the dunker spot, but like, I mean, that's not that he couldn't make that earlier, but I think he did that a lot more consistently. I also, um, small thing. I thought that he handled du- uh, double teams fairly well, can, just considering what his role is and what he tends to do. Like um, he's not always amazing at hitting the overhead, but I think he started to show more of that as the year went on. Um, and he's good at like taking an escape dribble too, if pressure comes out to him and not like just, totally fumbling the bag when uh when two showed the ball yeah i'd agree with that um there was a there was a possession against colorado this year where he he they had a little hard hedge there back dribble through like a right-handed whip pass down to the left block it was pretty nice but back to the houston game for a second one thing i wanted to say is i mean he you guys both saw he pretty he struggled in the first half a lot i think he's he forced some stuff as well the shot wasn't falling one thing that i actually thought the second half, like he, he started to attack a little bit more, try to get better looks, try to get to the free throw line. Even in the first half, he tried to get the free throw line a little, but there was like, I mean, he settled the first half, but yeah, one, one stuff did not go his way or Arizona's way this year. I think that he, he did his best to try to get to the free throw line and to try get um, some points that way that would hopefully get him going, going forward. And I know that's little things, but I, I do think that actually helped Arizona in the second half of that Houston game. He was pretty big for them there. Yeah. 
it's funny because I actually felt like uh, he kind of left some stuff on the table in terms of getting to the line more. Like, with how ridiculous his pop is around the rim, like, he had some plays, uh, especially even just in these three games going back through. Um, it's not all the time, but there are some moments where you're just like, oh, shit, okay, like that. Um, like, I think there was, like, a spin that he had in, I want to say it was a UCLA game um, for, I think it was just a lay-in or it might have been a dunk. I can't remember off the top of my head, but um, like you see the moments of pop where it's like, oh, okay. And uh, yeah, I think if he's able to just like, it feels like, and, and kind of like we hit on a little bit, like it's just finding the pacing and a lot of, again, a lot of that is going to be the handle to tightening up. But if he can just like slow down a little bit in the half court, it feels like he's going to be able to speed things up offensively in a way too, because he's not, you know, like you, you can see so often when he's dribbling through traffic where he has to kind of stop himself or, or, kind of starts to get erratic just because his handle is a little bit all over the place. Yeah, I, I agree. But but as an overall view of his offense, though, I still would say, like, we're talking a lot about the the handle and all this, and I think we should because that is where the upside comes from. But I, I do think with him, though, he is one of the – I don't want to say one of the safe bets just because, I mean, it's, it's tough when you're predicting guys at the NBA level. But I do think that he does, like Caitlin was mentioning, just how they used him in Arizona, a lot of NBA sets, and that skills – how he was playing there should translate. And with the Pacers specifically, like they could use him in a way that could put him in a position to succeed. And I think with so many rookies, they're just not put in positions to succeed. And then they fall out of the league or they fall out of the rotation and they got to go to like two or three teams before they even get the right shot. And I think that's just so important with these rookies. You want to get them in their best position to succeed. I think that that will fit. Most of this will fit with what my overall stock down was. And I don't want it to sound like I'm too down on it, but something that I felt showed up in these three games, and it kind of goes back to some of the passing as well, but I, I've termed it as shot selection slash decision-making. So earlier when I referenced the one elevator play that they specifically run, the opposite guard comes down and goes through, and that's on the weak side, and then they use him. It's a, basically a, it's a back cut, but Houston sat on it, recognized, and knew, hey, you're going to back cut this. So then it becomes he's in isolation. He's going to have to create to get off of that island rather than beating his guy on the move. And at four Houston players collapse on him, like he dribbled basically into a sinkhole, and that still ended up being a shot for him rather than you know passing out of the swarm of bodies that are around him. He did not make it. And then I feel that set design a lot of times can tell us a lot, not only about what the team sees of him, but also what we can project. So one set that I shared on Twitter today that I think is really smart that the Phoenix Suns also use this as well. It's entry into Chicago action. So it's like a little zipper screen between the four or five. The four comes to the opposite elbow where the five is going to be running the handoff portion of it. And this is all for Matherin. But the four will stand as if he's going to get you know, that he's sitting there into his defender, like, hey, I, I might get this pass. You might reverse it to me rather than being in the traditional stance of what you would see for a pin down screen to get into Chicago. So Matherin comes off of that. And because the four is positioned like that, most teams are not going to switch. That's the main reason why I think the Phoenix Suns do that as well. Like that's going to prevent a team from switching. It allows Matherin to catch the ball on the move, get his defender trailing behind him. The Houston game, he uses a nice little change of speed against the center in a drop and is able to get to the rim. Well, when he's playing against UCLA, the strong side defender comes off. Another defender comes off and converges on him. He could make a very easy pass to the strong side corner, and that would be, you know, at least an open three. But again, he 
he chooses that to be his shot. So sometimes I feel like plays that these are all plays that they ran in multiple games that I saw them run in these three and in the other games I watched that sometimes there needs to be more recognition that just because a play is being run for you doesn't mean you have to be the player who scores off it. I don't necessarily think it's like a selfish thing. It's just not a recognition of where the defenders are moving. Cause like, it felt like his passing did improve in terms of him recognizing, you know, especially on plays where there isn't a backside helper and he could find the guy at the rim. And sometimes he would read the sink defender, but in these cases, it just feels like the shot selection needs to be a little bit better. Yeah, I'd agree. So I, I still would say as a whole, the decision-making, even with passing, isn't great either. I just wanted to say that it had improved. But I do think the decision-making with shot selection and passing, and, and even when he catches the ball on the perimeter, there are times where there's a quick swing pass that he just doesn't do. And he, he will, I don't want to say a ball stopper, but I mean, there are yeah. times where you, you there are times where he just kills the offense because he holds the ball for a second too long before he wants to attack or he, he swings it. Um, but no, I, I think that's a good point. Sometimes when plays, like you said, when they're, when they're ran for you, doesn't mean you have to be the one making the shot. So I, I would agree there for sure. Yeah. And I think that there's some spots too. I think you might've loosely mentioned this where he's, he, likes to take some quick twos very early in the shot clock as well that, you know, if his, if his defenders under, if there's a spot where he can do that, where maybe, you know, if the handle did tighten up, I'm sure that a team would rather see him probe that a little bit or get the ball moving rather than taking um, the really early quick two. But I also do want to talk about the defense a little bit more because both of you guys talked about that. Um, He seems to be getting billed a lot as a three and D player. How do both of you feel about that label? So the, the three and D label, I think it's something that's just overused at this point. I don't yes, want yes. to say yeah. it's overrated because I do think that's still a very valuable role, even though we can't talk about how in the playoffs, you still want people who can do more, but in terms of just like how it comes from draft prospects, I don't want to say overrated. I just want to say it's overused. People find anyone that has some kind of wing size who can shoot the ball and they say three and D or I've seen people who can't even shoot and they're a good defender. They say three and D. So like overall, I just think the label is just overused um, in the, in the draft community. Yeah. I've, yeah. I, I brought this up with a purpose because I was hoping you would both say that. So <laughs> I, I'm just a little tired of seeing it all the time. And I don't feel as strongly as I did Mark when we did the AJ Griffin pod and that, I was a lot more down on where AJ's current defense is than I am Matherin's. And I think kind of to an extent, like saying that Matherin's three and D kind of pigeonholes what his offense is a little bit, because I don't think he's completely and only limited to shooting threes. But defensively, I do have some questions. So, Mark, what would you say as a strength of his on defense? Um, I actually like one of the things that I have a lot of notes on, I'm, I'm hoping Zach can fill us in a little bit more on, like, I actually thought that his communication wasn't bad but it it always felt like him and who he was trying to switch with were never on the same page and I don't know if you can necessarily put that on I I mean without being there and being the coach I don't know who to put it on um but like you can very clearly so often like see him point out and call for a switch and it just doesn't happen a lot of the times or there's like some kind of like you know just uh um some kind of dissonance there and like it also like, I mean, to be, to be fair as well, like he has some moments where he bumble switches as well. It's not just like in either or, but I do think like you at least see like some attentiveness there. Um, w- I, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I like that you brought it up that we just don't know. Like I, I always struggle to, to talk about 
those kind of communication things without being there at the practice and knowing what their game plan is for certain players, how they want to defend one person in the pick and roll, or do they want to double on the post on the catch on one dribble, two dribbles, whatever. So with certain things, I always find it a little bit more difficult on the defensive end. doesn't mean it can't be done, but um, I, I do think that he did show some of that um, in terms of his strength on defense for what I'd say. Um, it's, I don't think he was really consistent on anything on the defensive end, but I do think he showed like, I think it showed more last for his freshman season than this season. I think he did a decent job when he would close out at quickly flipping his hips and staying with a defender on a drive. I don't think he showed that as often this season than he did his freshman year, but I say that there was this year. I mean, he's still so athletic. So when he makes the right read in the right rotation, he can still have an impact. There was, I'm trying to think, I think it was against Danford, um, where he had this really, really good weak side rotation to block a shot at the rim, got out and transition and hit a three. So like when he recognizes stuff, he can still impact the play. But I mean, there's just so many times where he, he just does not process things quickly. I think there were three games, which did you guys, do you remember which UCLA game you watched by the way? Uh, it was the one... Pac-12 championships okay. I watched. Okay. So there was one game, the, the UCLA game at Arizona, um, along with the Houston game, you guys saw at the end of the Houston game where I think they were probably the last three or four minutes of the game, Arizona was finally coming back. And on the right wing, they hit a three with him just standing still the whole time. There yeah. was like three or four times in like the last four or five minutes of a game where he, where he just had a defensive blunder there, where that Houston game, UCLA at Arizona. And I want to say one more. I want to say it was an Oregon game, but don't quote me on that one. The other two I'm more confident in. But he just, there were some crucial situations there at the end of games this year where he just did not make the rotation that needed to be made. Um, so that, yeah. that's where my concern is on the defensive end. And that's where mine is as well, because that's where I was going to bring up the dissonance, because I think a lot of times some of the processing stuff that you're bringing up, I think shows up in scramble situations where he has to know where he needs to get out and where his rotation is. And it feels like it's just a beat or a beat too slow. And then, but like you're saying, there is moments where he can show off, you know, that vertical pop to pitch in and help at the rim in certain games. And you feel like, Oh, that's something that, you know, kind of reminiscent of what Victor Oladipo used to do. Not that he was a weak side shot blocker, but that he was very good as the low man and being able to, to slide over and take charges and defend in that way. But then you'll see like what you're just bringing up in the Houston game. He seems to not always know when to pounce and when not to. So you, you see moments where it's like the one possession in the Houston game, he's practically walking on defense, never gets into a stance, doesn't seem particularly engaged, needs to be in help side during the pick and roll and doesn't actually go to slide until the roll man already has it and is making the shot. And then there's other ones where he's over there way too early and it's coming clear off the corner, like what you mentioned. And then he's giving up a very wide open corner three. So I feel like some of the decision-making in general, like what Mark was saying too, like I noticed a few spots where it seems to me like the coverage at times was supposed to be the big in a drop and like, he doesn't get over the screen. So it's like, I'm just going to hug the screener. And then he just motions for the big, like, Hey, come out of that drop and go contest the three. So some of those types of decisions and the overall engagement at times, I feel like the Pacers would want more consistency on because maybe some other teams have, like, I don't want to say that I think that Matherin would be the weakest link in any lineup defensively, but I think he has a ways to go to be the strongest. And for the Pacers, when they already have, Quite a few on-ball weak links. Um, I'm not saying it would prevent me from drafting him, but I do think that they need to be 
sure of who they're going to be adding that's going to be an upgrade defensively and it does feel like there's some um, inconsistency in a lot of areas on defense but at the same time you can point out some of the bright spots and think hey if he does if he can put it together and do some of that with more consistency then maybe it it plays out and they feel good about it but um, I don't think I would be labeling him as a three and D player at this current point in time I guess is my point yeah I I agree and I want to touch on a few things you said there with the with the scrambling thing that's perfect Um, the the UCLA play that I was referring to was off an offensive rebound they're scrambling and he's just there sitting in the same spot for three or four seconds while they're trying he's trying to figure out where to go and they get an open three because of it Um, but yeah I, I wanted to mention that and then what's the last thing that what was the last thing that you were saying again there uh, there's something I had oh i pointed there. out that in this game there's was, there was two or three spots where i don't think they were supposed to be switching and he basically just hugs the screener and the big is in a drop and he's just motioning for the big to then come out of the drop to go contest the guard from three yeah okay i think i lost my train of thought for the last thing i was going to say but no i agree with the scrambling point for sure mark is there any other like main overarching topics that you wanted to bring up with regard to him or the pacers in general of what his um, projection would be with them. Well, I think uh, the, and it's not like that is like a massive hindrance, but like wh- how tall do you think Benedict Mathern actually is? Yes, yeah. Well, both of you. Um, is he six, six? No, I, I wouldn't in shoes. I, I would say like, I would probably say six, five. I, I would say like, I would say he's definitely not six six in my opinion. She's I'd say like six five and a half the max, but I'd say probably six five. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where I'm at too. Cause like I, I'm not saying that the Pacers have to draft a three, but it just makes it um it makes it a little bit more interesting because I just don't quite know how to um, you know, in looking at the way that this roster is set up, like not that I would call him a guard necessarily, he's definitely a wing, but I think. To me, I look at this roster and they need more of somebody who's got a little bit more size to them. Not that he, that he can't play a little bit bigger, but um, you're getting another guy who's like kind of in that same mold as Malcolm Brogdon and Chris Duarte right now. And I think we've routinely seen like they need somebody who's a little bit bigger than that. Um, but that just like a small misnomer. No, I'm, I think that's a good thing to bring up because, I mean, I'm thinking back to our pod that we did the first player review pod where we talked about Malcolm and Buddy and we looked at the splits with Tyrese and talked about how, like, even though the Pacers were not a good basketball team after the trade, they somehow managed to have a positive net rating in the minutes where Tyrese played with Buddy and Malcolm wasn't on the floor versus getting outscored by 17 points per 100 in the Tyrese-Malcolm minutes and wondering if that wasn't somewhat of the type of mold of a player they needed to find, even if they ultimately decided that Buddy and Brogdon weren't on the correct timeline for where this roster is. And I think in a lot of respects, Matherin can do some of the things that Buddy was doing in the offense. But to your point, what are you drafting him to be? Like if you're drafting him to be another wing and you're going to be projecting a Tyrese Chris, um, Matherin kind of, I I wouldn't call him three guards, but it is going to be smaller. And I do think that you're going to have some defensive issues there. If they're anticipating that they're going to be moving on from both of those veterans, maybe you view that a little bit differently, but then what you're weighing and and taking with his handle and his passing, you might have a little bit different view on, but I I would definitely take Zach's opinion there as well. Yeah. I think with the defense, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call him like a a wing defender or a wing stopper or whatever. Like he definitely doesn't have, 
the size to defend those kinds of wings that you're hoping to, to get like those, those playmaking wings, right. That all these playoff teams have, like as the people are trying to find, uh, he's not going to have that kind of size to defend them. I think he is pretty strong. Um, mm, and I, I'd say, yeah, I say six, five, I mean, that's not bad size, but, but yeah, like you both mentioned, it's just, you probably would rather have someone an inch or two taller, but at the same time, I'm not really sure if you're finding that in this draft either. Um, there's that's also the problem it's not easy to find those players right yeah no definitely i mean that, that makes it a little bit more disjointed and like you know this is of course the draft that the pacers get a lottery pick but you know beggars cannot be choosers or i should say uh 48 win teams cannot be choosers but um yeah no i i mean can't is there anything else you want to hit on with him well actually another thing i did want to hit on um I do really like how he can attack the glass on offense. Like I think, especially off of broken plays on offense, I really like some of the things he brings there. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, just, I think, like I said earlier, he was sort of invisible at times last in his freshman season, but he just found more ways to impact the game this year. And, and it, offensive rebounds, another, another part there. Um, I, I think just in big games, I think it was the TCU game really big offensive rebound at the end of the game. I think he might've had he one of the so Houston awesome game. game. Yeah. yeah, it was. Um, but he just, he just has found smaller ways to impact the game. And I don't think he's like some crazy impactful player. It's just been great to see his improvement from his early freshman season all the way till now. Um, but no, I agree with the offensive rebounding um, and he can go back up and then finish after that as well. Cause he's already there. Nice touch there. But I do think he's able to show his athleticism and some physicality on those offensive rebounds. Definitely. Caitlin, did you want to hear anything else? I mean, would it be fair? I mean, I'm thinking back. We've so far we've covered, you know, the Jabari Smith pod is, you know, pour one out for that. I don't think we really need that podcast yeah. anymore. <laughs> um, Jaden Ivey, Keegan Murray, and who is the other player that we did, Mark? I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Oh, wow, that's a great question. Um, should, <laughs> that's uh, pretty bad remember. that we don't even remember <laughs> wow. this off the top uh, of my head. Oh, AJ Griffin. AJ yeah, Griffin. yeah. Wow. So, Sorry, um, AJ. Would you say that this is probably the safest pick is that fair to say do you see benedict mathern as a safe pick um oh that's tough you can you can go first mark i i think i would say keegan is right now personally like yeah. just based on what i think he's going to be able to bring right away and i mean his... and you can take the word safe as a derogatory or a positive thing <laughs> well take it oh, i didn't i didn't mean it, it to go. Way, but um yeah it's it's interesting like because i don't know like especially going back through and watching like i think i and, I mean, I probably watched like 10 or 11 Arizona games this year. And my general thoughts on a math room, more of thinking of him like you, like you mentioned, like I, uh, and I, I, th I think I texted the group chat, Zach and I are in like right before this. And I was like, you know, he's a, like, I, I see him as a lottery pick for sure, but I just feel kind of like, eh, like, you know, like, and I don't mean that to be unkind, but just in terms of like who I think he's going to be, but I think even more in watching this and in talking to um, like, I do think like there are some of the real, flashes that make you think that there could be a little bit more there that makes me think uh less about like necessarily him being a safe pick and more like I think that he has a safe floor but I'm just curious whether or not this team would be trying to probe what that ceiling could be um or really giving him the opportunities to learn through some of those mistakes um would kind of be my question I guess that's not really fully answering your question I don't think that he's the safest player yeah I think if so out of, I mean, it's tough because like AJ Griffin, right? I, I'm pretty confident his shot's going to translate. So that's really good for him. But I mean, there's, I have some big defensive concerns there. 
And I, I, without or besides the shooting, I'm not sure how much more I want to bet on with him. Um, and then you go to, to, I would say Keegan is probably this. Safer is always tough to say. I mean, out of these four, I'd say Jaden Ivy is the guy I like the most out of the four by far. Yeah. Um, that's how I feel. But I am like, if Jaden Ivy's shot doesn't really work out well, and he his his primary like you try to put him on the ball and it doesn't work out well. Also, I can definitely see a scenario where he doesn't work out. Um, but but yeah, no, I, I'd say I do like um, Keegan's just overall skill set. Um, but yeah, I, I would say like if we're talking about safe, I would say Keegan over Mathman if you're going to go those two um, in terms of safeness. Yeah, I think the thing with Keegan is that he answers more of the problems that the Pacers currently have. Mm-hmm. And I think he would also fit into the offense. I still have some quibbles on whether a Rick Carlisle team would take full use of what all of his various skills are. I think in some ways they would let him do some of the post play. I think some of that would get slashed, which I mean, I don't think is necessarily wouldn't be uncommon across a lot of NBA teams, but if you're not going to fully use the full breadth of what he can do, Um, I might have some questions there. I I guess my main thing was what I said in the stock up that I think of all of the players that we've profiled, not that he has the higher ceiling. I think that that would belong to Ivy, though I'm kind of operating under the assumption that Ivy will probably be off the board as well when the Pacers pick, but that, like I said, I think he's going to be the easiest plug and play into a Rick Carlisle offense among them. And then from his perspective, that it would be a pretty easy match for him as well to fit into what the rest of the roster is, as well as what Rick Carlisle aims to do offensively. So um, I don't know how much higher his ceiling would be based on what we've seen, but I could understand it from a fit perspective if he was ultimately who the Pacers selected. Yeah, I think that's, that's fair. Um, if you, if you do want to see a little bit more of a ceiling thing, I'd say the first half of USC is a good one to watch at USC. Um, but, but going back to what, what Mark said about how he thinks Matthew is just like a lottery kind of guy. I agree. Um, generally, I think it's tough. Like I think in a normal draft, that's like a back end lotto kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Um, in this draft for me, it's a little bit tough. I'm just not really a fan of many players outside of the top four. Um, I guess my top four. So it, it, it's always, it's always tough. So like, I think the five, six, seven, eight range is just not ideal this year, unfortunately for the Pacers, but I mean, you could always still obviously find a really good player there. There's no doubt about that. It's just, I think it's a little bit harder and a little bit less intriguing this year than um, in some other years. Definitely. That's basically what I told Mark before we started this pod. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Pretty much. But Call him Benedict Matcherin after you uh, after you said you could match the faces. That was like the worst pun to leave off on. Uh, <laughs> Zach, do you have anything that you want to plug before we get out of here? Um, not really. I mean, I'd say just give me a follow on Twitter. Um, I haven't really put out any um, pieces recently. I've just been tweeting a lot of clips recently. So my Twitter is Zach, Z-A-C-H, Milner13. Um, I, I might look into – I mean, I haven't put out any articles in a couple of years since I was with um, – working privately for a little or having a job. So I might go back to doing the second round articles that I had done before for some second round players and undrafted free agents. So if I do that, just keep an eye on my Twitter for that. If not, I'll probably go back to putting out more content. I mean, hopefully not next season, but if, if I have to the next season. Definitely. Well, I appreciate you taking the time man, and coming on. I have a uh, little doubt that you will be uh, private again this next season because your stuff's always awesome. Definitely follow Zach. He's been putting out some great stuff uh, during the combine, getting clips up during the day. 
Um, Caitlin, do you have anything you want to get out there before we get out? No, I'm just plugging that people who have listened to this pod can go to Indy Cornrows and read the article that accompanies it and to continue to look forward to more of these as we approach the actual draft. 100%. Well, Caitlin, thank you for joining Zach. Thanks for taking the time. To everyone listening, thank you for listening. Of course, go follow Zach if you have not already. And most importantly, have a good rest of your day.